You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 116, Ezekiel chapter 7. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hi, Mike. How are you? Very good, Trey. How was your week? Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I just wanted to update everybody real quick, Mike. I was taking a look at the numbers on the podcast, and we've actually quadrupled our listenership over the last 12 months. So wow. hopefully the next 12 months we can quadruple again. So maybe the Get Naked Bible podcast, <laughs> everybody reaching out to their friends. And and I know everybody knows that one person they could talk to. I was talking to my friend, Jeff. I'm going to give him a shout out. And how when you start talking to people about this kind of content, some people just, they just, eyes are just gloss over and just, uh-huh, that sounds good. <laughs> you know, and then you just slowly walk away because you know you're losing them. But you, when you hear this content, you immediately, people come to your mind immediately who you think would this content would resonate with. So, you know, we're really asking for those people out there, our listeners to go find those people in your church in your family, wherever you are. Cause I know you have one or two people in mind that would enjoy this content. So let's try to get them on board and uh, do some good things. Yeah. And that, that's a good strategy. People have to remember that we have a very clear understanding that what we do here is not for everybody. Uh, frankly, I've, that's just the way I've operated for years. You know, what, what I do, the things I write, the things I'm focused on, um, this, this is not for the average churchgoer. This is not for the average person in the pew. And that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not aiming for them. I'm not shooting for them. But it, it, it's for those, you know, one, two, three, four, half dozen people that, again, you're going to know uh, in church or your, your circle of friends who just know that uh, they're not getting fed. They're not getting, they're not getting serious content. You know, it. they know it. Uh, that that's the person we're shooting for against somebody who, you know, just wants to, to move beyond or supplement or, you know, replace or whatever, however they perceive it, you know, what, what's happening in church for them in terms of content. Uh, that's the person we're looking for. So and that's also, a good way to approach it. And also do it for yourself because you know how frustrating it is when you have nobody else to talk to about this content. I mean, my friend Jeff, uh, over a decade, I was talking about the Divine Council worldview, worldview and, and just going on and on and on and on. And, <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't say too much because you overload people sometimes because there's just so much to it. So mm-hmm. imagine just the happiness that yourself <laughs> you'll get by being able to share and just have a conversation with somebody else about this stuff. So if anything, do it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fun. Yeah, to, your own sanity. Yeah. For your own sanity or start a small Bible group or, you know, approach it that way because uh, as this ministry is growing, we're really going to rely on our listeners and all of us to uh, champion this and, uh, yeah, the bottom line is this isn't going to grow without the listener. I mean, it's just that simple. This is a very grassroots, boots on the ground kind of thing. You know, we're not doing crazy stuff to draw attention of you know the the, the gatekeepers in the uh, 
in the Christian world and all that stuff. Again, it's not our focus. It's not our interest. You know, we're just looking for, again, people who care about content and that's just not, it's not going to grow unless listeners, uh, you know, reach out to people and try to get them to listen. Absolutely. Well, all right, Mike, well, with that, I'm ready for chapter seven. Yeah, we're in Ezekiel seven today. And again, just to situate everyone to, you know, reorient your, your mind. The first three chapters of Ezekiel, of course, were the call of Ezekiel. You know, typically, that's associated with the first chapter, but as we saw, it extends on into chapter 3. And then we looked at Ezekiel 4 and 5, which right after Ezekiel gets called to ministry, he you know, delivers you know, a series of sign acts against Jerusalem and Judah. Because again, that, that's all that's left. The northern kingdom by this time in Israel's history is toast. Literally, it is history. Uh, so Jerusalem and Judah are the focus. Of course, Ezekiel was taken captive in the second wave, you know, of the uh, of the demise of of Judah as a political, you know, national entity, and that he's back there with the the captives, and he's forecasting. Well, here, you know, this isn't over yet. Here's what's going to happen, you know, to the city. What's going to happen to the temple? And so he goes through a series of these sign acts. There were nine of them in, in chapters four and five about, again, physically doing things to describe what's going to happen to the city and its inhabitants. And then last time in chapter six, we sort of got the whole rationale, you know, the, the, the cause for why God was so angry uh, with Jerusalem and, and Judah. Of course, the answer to that was it's idolatry. And you'll remember again how this was framed, you know, it, God wasn't so upset with with people who were untaught uh, by the you know by frankly apostate disloyal priests. You know people are gonna they're gonna be sheep without a shepherd, and so God's gonna look at the people who you know who worship incorrectly, uh, even worship you know, another god wrongly, thinking that it's Yahweh or something like that. He's gonna look at people who who just don't know better differently than he does with the phrase we used last time was state-sponsored apostasy, where you have people who do know better from the kings to the priests, you know, on down through the bureaucracy, doing things like building high places in Jerusalem, okay, adjacent to the temple. And of course, when you get to Manasseh, uh, actually moving, you know, pagan objects into the temple itself uh, the, the holy place. When 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 you do stuff like that, that is sort of the last straw, you know, with God. God, it, that that that's the thing that is going to break the covenantal bond, and is going to sort of unleash the curses that we read about in Deuteronomy, and of course Leviticus twenty six was a focus last time because Ezekiel six borrows language from Leviticus twenty six about you know if if you go off and and are disloyal to Yahweh and you worship other gods then you know he's you're going to be driven from the land and so on and so forth and this is what's happening this is what's taking shape you know in real time in Ezekiel's lifetime and again you know we could situate that further into again what we call the divine council worldview where God is so offended uh, at that because Jerusalem is his sacred space. Now, you could say, well, the whole land, you know, the land of Israel is sacred space to Yahweh. And that's true, again, in the context of cosmic geography. But Jerusalem, the, the city, and of course the temple, this was Zion. This was the place of Yahweh's habitation. Uh, this is where, where Yahweh conducts business you know, with his council. 
uh, to administer the affairs of his people in his land, of course, in his city, his temple, his, his house. And when you start, again, building you know, high places and objects of worship and conducting worship on that sacred space, then that is going to be you know, a, a clear violation that you are knowingly transgressing and worshiping you know, other gods. You are no longer in a status of believing loyalty uh, to Yahweh. You are, you are surrendering that ground to other gods. So this is the, the context, you know, leading into Ezekiel 7. And of course, you know, we've, we've had the rationale for why God is so angry in the previous chapter. Then we hit chapter 7, and it's really, again, just sort of a, a reiteration of you're doomed. I mean, if, you, if you wanted to, to take the whole chapter and, and encapsulate it into two words, it would be you're doomed. Uh, and that's what we're going to get here in, in chapter 7. I'm going to read through the first 13 verses and then uh, come back and comment on a few things. Again, what we do here isn't, if you're new, it's not verse by verse, but you know, we, we take section by section and comment on things that interest me and I think are worth commenting on. So as we jump in here in verse 1 in chapter 7, we read, The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. And I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Verse 10. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live, for the vision concerns all their multitude. It shall not turn back, and because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. That's the first 13 verses, and of course you notice as we read, there's lots of repetition in it. Uh, specifically, what, what you have is you have three sort of short mini-oracles, judgment pronouncements, that are linked together in these first 13 verses by similar phrases like, the end has come, an end has come, the end is upon you, your doom has come, the time has come, you know, behold, it comes. Uh, all this sort of repetition. Really, you know, those phrases that I just, you know, went through, there are 
there are nine or 10 of them in 27 verses. We only read uh, the, the first 13. So, you know, most of them are actually in those 13 verses. So it raises a question, you know, for, for commentators and close readers, you know, what's up with this? Why the repetition? And this brings us to an important theme. And I think when we get to the end of our time today, I'm, I'm going to sort of run full circle back here and say that this is sort of the payoff point. You know, we get it right up front. The repetition is there because of the belief, if you, if you wanted to, to use a negative word, you would say the myth of the inviolability of Jerusalem, of Zion. Now, this is actually a topic that scholars discuss very specifically uh, in Old Testament study, the inviolability of, of Zion, or the inviolability of Jerusalem. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's the idea that Jerusalem's destruction was just simply inconceivable, that people just didn't think it was possible because of the Davidic covenant. You know, God had promised, you know, this everlasting covenant with the dynasty of David. So how could God possibly destroy us? It also is propelled by the you know, by the, the temple. Well, this is where God lives. Why would he destroy his own house? You know, the city of David, in, you know, that, that's where the temple is located. I mean, there was this mythology, there was this belief that because of the Davidic covenant, because of the temple, Zion, Jerusalem, would never be destroyed. God just wouldn't do that. He wouldn't go there. And of course, you know, the, the the, the whole messaging here, I mean, Ezekiel's writing and, of course, speaking earlier than the writing, you know, to people who had grown up thinking this way, and he has to pepper them with, you know, just so they get the point, so they don't miss it. Your end has come. The time has come. Your doom is here. I mean, and he just peppers them with this because if you just say it once, it's not going to catch. If you just say it over and over and over again, it, again, it reinforces the point that, hey, you're, you're sitting there thinking, okay, I mean, just, just put yourself in, in the situation. We've had a, you know, two waves now of captivity. You know, Nebuchadnezzar has gone down you know, into Jerusalem. He's taken people out. Ezekiel, of course, went in the second wave. He's left the city standing. He's left the temple standing. He's installed puppet you know, rulers and leaders, puppet governors there. And so people are like, well, that was bad, but hey, we're still here. Hey, the temple's still here. Hey, Jerusalem's still here. And why? It's here because God will never allow it to be destroyed because of, you know, this this theological thinking. And Ezekiel's saying, that just isn't true. It's just not true. Okay, this is not done yet, and worse is yet to come. Now, Again, I've referred to this as as a myth because it it is. You know, God didn't tie his own hands by making promises to David or by deciding to put his presence, you know, to use the Deuteronomy language, to set his name in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple. Okay. You know, when when God decides to do these things, he's not thinking, oh, I hope they don't get so bad because I'll never be able to to pull out or destroy this place because I'm here, you know, and I don't want my house to get messed up. Again, that's that's just mythological kind of thinking. But, you know, the, the people living at the time, again, 
they are thinking about the Davidic dynasty. They're, th- they're thinking about their own history, too. I mean, at this point, we're in the 6th century BC. They've seen things like the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem in Hezekiah's time, you know, delivering uh, the city supernaturally from the hands of Sennacherib, the Assyrian. Again, when, when stuff like that happens, it's going to contribute to this belief that Zion is inviolable. It will never go away. It will never die. It'll never be destroyed. This is just what people expected. And, and there is, again, some historical reason for them to think these thoughts. But they're, again, what I'm suggesting is they're not thinking clearly. You know, you don't, God's hands aren't tied. But let me just give you a couple examples in the Hebrew Bible of this. If you go to, to Psalm 46, for instance, and just think about what, what the psalm says. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the whole psalm. I mean, if you've, again, this is something that you would have heard before many times. Uh, you know, not just in Psalm 46, there's Psalm 48. You know, there's other places that that you you become convinced. Can I catch what I'm saying here? You interpret your Bible in such a way to think that God will not do X, Y, or Z. You know, you you presume to know the limits of a passage. You presume to, I hate to say it this way, but I will, to filter God through your understanding of some verses. You know, I, I don't have to, you know, be terribly pointed here. We do this. Uh, again, I, when we when we get to the end of our time here, I'm, I'm going to be reiterating this, but I hate to say it this way, but many Christians view the church, their church, the, the nation, America, in these terms. And and what I'm suggesting to you, I mean, not only don't I believe that America is the new Israel or something like that. I mean, that that's that's Mormon theology, I guess. You know that America is the new city of God, or something like that. Not only don't I, I believe that, but look, if we were, it wouldn't give us any comfort, because God did destroy Israel. He did destroy Judah. He did destroy Jerusalem. He did destroy the temple. He he had again Nebuchadnezzar and other foreign invaders go in there and wipe the slate clean because of their apostasy. You know we're no better than they were. <laughs> you know, again, again, being a, a citizen of any modern country uh, nowadays, America or anything else, 
you know, doesn't make you one of the people of God, you know, but, but we, we sort of cast things like this. And, and so I don't want to pick on the Israelites for, for believing in, in, in what really was a myth. God never promised that he wouldn't judge them. In fact, he promised the opposite. You know, back to Deuteronomy, back to Leviticus. If you turn away from me, I will drive you from the land. I will forsake you. You know, I'm I'm not going to just put up with rival deities being worshipped in my own house. I'm not going to do it. But somehow, again, the people of Judah think that, you know, they'll look at a psalm like Psalm 46 and think, you know, we're okay. We're always going to be okay. Uh, it might get bad. You know, God has to do something, but he won't do this. Well, that's just really not good theology. I mean, it's really not biblical theology, and all you got to do is look at your Old Testament for it. You know, the, 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 innocent, the innocent do suffer, you know, with the unrighteous as well. So here we go. You know, this is what I, what I want to challenge you to think about as we go through, the, you know, this chapter and pick out a few other things. Is this thinking? Because we, we're, it's really dangerous, again, to think that God will make an exception for, for me or for you or your church. or your, Okay, you know, in a world, again, back to the Divine Council worldview, if, if you've read Unseen Realm, this is going to all be familiar to you. Evil exists because God made the decision to allow free will beings, you know, to create intelligent beings as his own imagers to represent him, whether it be in the unseen world or the seen world. And part of that representation, the, the tools for representing God, the tools for imaging God, it's not the image, but the tools for imaging involve God sharing his attributes with us. One of those is free will. And, and, and with that comes the, the risk, the ability. And, and God wasn't surprised. He, he knows eventually beings who aren't him, who can make free will decisions, will make mistakes or rebel. Why? Because they're not him. Again, none of this is, is a surprise to God. God isn't caught by surprise. Oh, I wish I wouldn't have you know, allow them to make free will decisions. I didn't see that coming. No, God saw it all coming, but he was committed to it. And when it did come, he didn't scrap the plan. There is no plan B. There's only plan A. He's committed to humanity, again, as his imagery. And, we, and that's why he has to step in and redeem people. Yes, he has to punish, you know, but there's always redemption. And again, these big theological constructs, but this is why there is evil. And when there is evil, when you have free beings decide to do evil, the righteous do suffer. Okay, people get caught up in, in the midst of all that. But again, the only alternative to this system, if you want to call it a system, is for God never to have created humanity or any other intelligent being at all. The only way God escapes it is if he is totally alone, because he's the only one that's perfect. Okay, so so you know, again, we need to to be looking at the, the wider theological worldview here and then, you know, funnel it into Ezekiel's situation here in chapter 7. And he's just telling people, look, if you think you're the exception, think again. Okay, and, and he's just laid out the reasons in chapter 6. God is justified by using Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to do this because you're the ones that should have known better. Again, the whole back to the whole theme of state-sponsored 
state-promoted apostasy. It goes all the way back to Solomon. I mean, Solomon builds high places for foreign deities. And it gets to the point where they're, they're, they're erecting these things right in the vicinity of, of God's own living space. God's just not going to tolerate that. He doesn't tie his own hands and, and prevent himself from judging wickedness and from having victory over other gods. And if, if part of that process is punishing his own people, the people of God, then that's what's going to happen. So again, it's, 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 it's easy to see how they were thinking. Another example, you could go back to Isaiah 7. You know, this is the, you know, the, the quote-unquote virgin birth passage. You know, and if anybody wants to listen to a, a fuller lecture on this, um, you go to, to, to my website, drmsh.com, click on the resources tab, and then go to videos, and then go to the one that says Jesus and the Old Testament number three. It's a lecture I have about Isaiah 7. I mean, I, I do affirm the virgin birth, but Isaiah 7 itself is not about uh, a virgin birth. The sign wasn't the sexual status of the woman. The sign was the son, was the child. And and Isaiah 7, the terms of Isaiah, Isaiah 7 are actually fulfilled in Isaiah's own lifetime. It's just that later on with Jesus, Matthew sees an analogy between the circumstances of Jesus' birth to what goes on in Isaiah 7, and he quotes that to establish the point, to establish the analogy. Back in Isaiah 7, you know, God wants Ahaz, you know, that, he prompts Isaiah to ask Ahaz for a sign that Ahaz is going to be protected from his enemies. At the time, this was, you know, Pekah, you know, the governor of Syria and Ramaliah, and, and again, these bad guys with the, you know, the, the northern kingdom and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and Ahaz says, well, I don't want to do that. You know, so he, he tries to act pious, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And God says, Basically, God gets annoyed and said, you're just wearying me with this false piety. Okay, behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And that's when we get the, you know, the young maiden, the Alma, will conceive and bear a son and so on and so forth. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. And by the time the child, you know, can eat solid food, eat the curds and honey, these enemies of yours are just going to be toast, you know. So, you know, there's a, a child. We don't know who the child is. We're never told. There are obviously different views. but God says, look, I'm going to do all this stuff to protect you. And what, why, how does that factor into Ezekiel 7 and, the, and the, the belief in Zion's inviolability? Because God protects Ahaz. The sign was for Ahaz, the king. He is the Davidic heir. He's the Davidic king. If Ahaz dies, the, the line of David is extinct. So, again, the events of Isaiah 7 are going to contribute to this notion God will always step in and, 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 and save Zion, save Jerusalem. This is his place. He will not let it be destroyed. And again, Ezekiel's saying, again, through this repetition, that's not really true. <laughs> okay, that, that is not the case. Nine times in 27 verses, but again, most of those are in the first 13 verses. He says, the time has come. The end has come. Your doom has come. I mean, he couldn't make it any clearer. He's trying to get the message across. Now, for people who are reading Ezekiel or listening to him who had read Amos, and Amos lived you know, before Ezekiel. He's, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, which, of course, is already toast. What's really interesting is that the phrase, the end has come, which is used several times in Ezekiel 7, is only used elsewhere 
in Amos. Uh, it, it, it actually, you know, some scholars have argued that it actually comes from the book of Amos. And if that's the case, well, even if it's not the case, even if people would have just heard it and remembered Amos, that would have freaked people out. It would have, it would have scared them. Because Amos says the same thing right before the fall of the northern kingdom. So that would have jogged in their, in their minds, uh-oh. <laughs> the last time we heard somebody say that, it was this set of circumstances and those 10 tribes just are, are, are gone. They've been scattered to the wind. So th- this kind of language should have alerted uh, the people you know, listening to Ezekiel or reading uh, Ezekiel at the time, you know, whatever form they would have gotten it. It would have been listeners, you know, in, in terms of real time, because, you know, again, this is around 590. It's going to be four years or so, you know, the temple is going to be destroyed. So, you know, the material probably wasn't written down by then, but, you know, we get it and we can, again, sort of do the math. But when they're hearing this, again, they know passages from, Leviticus. They know Deuteronomy. Uh, you know they, they could have had Hosea. Uh, they, they know, again, these stories, or again, in textual form, about how God had protected Zion earlier. And they're making certain theological assumptions in Ezekiel saying it just isn't the case. You're, you're going to get a really, really rude awakening you know, in, in, a, in a short amount of time. Now, I want to I go back, uh, you know, hit a few things here, and then we're going to go sort of from verse yeah, verse 10 onward, you know, we, we read through verse 13, but uh, really kind of using verse 10 as our launching pad here, and then moving onward, there are a few interesting phrases that Ezekiel uses uh, to describe the situation. I mean, I, there are you know, a lot of, we've, we've already seen a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repetition that follows. Let me just quickly read the rest of the chapter, verses 14 through, I think it's for yeah, verse 27. Uh, and, and again, you're going to get more repetition. A lot of this is self-explanatory, but there are a number of phrases and terms that we don't really pick up on well that, again, fit into the sort of theme that I've been talking about. And that's that's where I want to camp for the rest of our time here. So again, he First 13 verses, Ezekiel said, you know, your doom's coming. It's just going to be awful. Every, you know, the whole multitude is going to be under judgment. Then he says in verse 14, they, again, the, the, the people who are the objects of wrath here, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, outside. Pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword. Him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces and baldness on all their heads. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament, can you catch that phrase? His beautiful ornament, that's a reference to to God's ornament, Yahweh's ornament, they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore, I make it an unclean thing to them. 
and I will give it into the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profane. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Again, not a pretty picture. Uh, Like I said last time, we're going to get used to this kind of thing in Ezekiel. But let's go back, and I'm actually going to go back even further to verse 10 and just pick up a few things that I think are interesting, that are easy to miss, or or again, just things we wouldn't, wouldn't really catch our eye. In verse 10, there's a particular word here, doom, uh, that is interesting. It's actually also used in verse 7. In Hebrew, it's sephirah. And it's only used in one other place, Isaiah 28, 5, where, let me just read that verse. It says in Isaiah 28, 5, In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Now, Sephirah, again, this this word that in Ezekiel the ESV translates doom, is the word that Isaiah 28.5 has as a diadem or a crown of beauty. So how can the same word, again, here we have in Isaiah this description of a, a crown, maybe, a, you know, it could be a, a metal crown, it could be a garland of something, you know, around someone's head. Uh, but it's a positive image. Whereas back in, in Ezekiel, why would we translate it doom? Well, a lot of people have sort of picked up on this apparent disconnect. And there are a number of scholars that think we would be better off here instead of translating it doom, something like this. Back to Ezekiel 7, verse 10. Behold the day, behold it comes. Your chain has come. In other words, capturing that idea of this this ring, you know that 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 uh, you know can be put around something. So uh, maybe a chain, or a leash, or some kind of you know thing that binds, maybe a rope or something like that. So a lot of a lot of scholars would disagree with the way ESV has this. Again, I'm using the ESV. Your doom has come, and if it's a reference again to a, a chain, well, that means your bondage has come. Okay, it would be it would be a, a metaphor of bondage, and of course that's going to fit the context. So, in in my judgment, it's probably a good uh, a good solution, a good way to understand uh, this term. But it's not the kind of thing that you know would sort of pop up in our heads. And the reason I mention it is because of what follows it. You have your your chain or your your leash, your bondage has come. I'm correcting the translation now, and then we have the rod has blossomed. Well, that typically takes people mentally, you know, a, a budding rod. That, that, that takes people mentally back to Aaron's staff. 
But if you think about that, that doesn't make any sense either because that was, again, another positive image, Aaron's staff budding. That was, that was a sign, if you remember the story. That was a sign of, that God approved of Aaron as the high priest, a sort of a sign of Aaron's election as high priest. It wasn't a symbol of doom, and it wasn't a negative symbol at all. So again, scholars have have looked at you know this this doom word and said it's not really doom. It's, it's probably something like a chain or denotes bondage. So that that means you know it would make sense here. And of course, it's the same you know kind of ring imagery back in Isaiah. So that looks good. But this whole rod thing, I mean that that evokes a positive image when really the context declares something negative. And so if you look at the word rod in Hebrew. And if you know a little Hebrew, you you might be able to guess what it is here. It's mateh. That's mem, tet, hey is the lemma, mateh. Scholars have proposed, well, there's another word in Hebrew with the same consonants, but different vowels, muteh. And that, again, occurs elsewhere in, uh, in Ezekiel 9.9. So Ezekiel uses that word a little bit later, muteh. And that word means injustice. Okay, or, or or guilt. So it's probably best to change the, the pointing, change the vowels on this Hebrew word so that it makes sense. So it's a negative image. Now, let's go back to verse 10. Behold the day, behold it comes, your bondage has come. Okay, injustice, guilt has blossomed, pride has budded. Now all three of them make sense together. They're all three negative images the terminology makes sense in, in the Hebrew text, so on and so forth. If you remember back to the very first uh, episode of Ezekiel when we introduced the book, I mentioned we're going to get situations in the book where we're going to have to do a little text criticism. We're going to have to, um, you know, kind of look at the text and and see what's going on there. And, and again, occasionally, you know, uh, amend the text. In this case, change the vowels. Uh, so that it makes sense, or again, go try to try to use cross references to make sense out of a particular term. That's just what you have in Ezekiel. There are a lot of things like this that happen. Uh, it, this chapter, by the way, if you have Block's commentary, uh, he makes the comment really early on in this chapter that this chapter is kind of a mess uh, for this sort of thing. There's lots of these sorts of problems, interpretive problems in it. I'm only picking out a couple uh, again, just because I think they're interesting. Uh, things that you might, you know, wonder about. But Ezekiel is just full of that sort of thing, you know, where you, you have to do some evaluation here and actually look at, you know, the text and try to, you know, figure out, well, what what else might it might it mean? What might it say? The other, you know, advantage to this is if you look at, again, if you try to, you know, come up with some way to to keep these things in context, again, a negative context, it fits with verse 11. You know, you have you have here, your bondage has come, injustice has blossomed, pride has budded, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. There you have rod of wickedness. Certainly we can't have the, the, the blossoming or budding rod of Aaron in parallel to rod of wickedness. It just doesn't make any sense. But a rod of injustice and a rod of wickedness, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. I mean, basically, Ezekiel's saying, you know, look, things have come full circle here. Your, your iniquity, your apostasy is sort of tip-top full. And because of that, your bondage is right around the corner. 
The time has come, verse 12, the day has arrived. Again, you're, you're going to get what you deserve. And if, you, if you're wondering if you deserve it, go back to chapter 6. Yeah, you deserve it. You keep going in verses 12 and 13, we have this phrase, Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller will not return to what he has sold while they live. Basically, it's going to be so bad, you're not going to really care about your business. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to be in a situation where your, your livelihood can reset. You're going to lose everything, and you're going to know it. He's describing really economic devastation. I mean, it, life will never return to the way it was, at least for your generation. This isn't something that's just going to blow through. Jerusalem, and then it's like you pick up the pieces and you start all over again. No, it's going to be worse than that. I actually like what what Block says here. He has a, a paragraph about this little section of the phrases. I'm going to read it to you. This is from uh, the first volume of his Ezekiel commentary, right around page 259, 260. He says, The devastating economic impact of Yahweh's day of wrath is vividly illustrated in verses 12 and 13. And then return to again in verse 19. The collapse of the economy will be total, rendering all business transactions futile. The buyer will have no time or motivation to rejoice over the good deal he has made, nor will the seller regret that he has parted with his treasured possession. In fact, in a grim parody, now catch this, in a grim parody of the ancient laws of Jubilee, The prophet declares that patrimonial property that has been lost to the family will not return. The year of Jubilee will be canceled. Even though both parties to business transactions are still living, any legal procedures to reclaim lost property will be forestalled by the inevitable and irrevocable day of Yahweh. In short, buying and selling celebrating and mourning business deals will be irrelevant in this environment where the economic infrastructure has totally collapsed. In the event, the people will fall victim to their own iniquity with all their props knocked out from under them. Indeed, to borrow the image of Isaiah, Isaiah 24, 2, the wrath of Yahweh will prove the great equalizer. When he is through, the entire population people and priest, servant and master, maid and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor, will have been reduced to the lowest common denominator. That's a great paragraph, and it really captures what Ezekiel is saying here. You, you know, In a nutshell, this is going to be so bad that nothing you have experienced prior to this time except maybe bondage in Egypt when you were all slaves and you didn't know anything, you know, nothing that that you've experienced is going to be like this. There will be no reset for this generation. Your bondage is imminent. Okay. You will be destroyed and carried away and and just, you're going to lose everything. So he's really, Ezekiel's trying to really use dramatic terms and repetition Again, to, to just keep beating this into their heads about what's going to happen. Let's go to 14, verse 14. I'll read 14 through 18 here again. So after all that bad news, we read, they have, been, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready. 
but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon all their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, and all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, and horror covers them. Shame is on all faces, and baldness on all their heads. That's 14 through 18. Now, this section, you know, if, if the earlier section was sort of the economic impact, you know, Block uses a phrase that he, he talks about the psychological impact of, of this next section. And really, I mean, if you look at it, that's kind of evident. I mean, they're, they're essentially, there's sort of an emotional paralysis. They blow the trumpet, everything's ready, like they're ready to defend the city, but nobody goes to battle. Um, it's, it's as though they, they look at what's staring them in the face and they just lose heart. They just know there is no way out. You know, they, they, they hear the watchman's trumpet. You know, Ezekiel uses the, the watchman metaphor a lot, you know, to alert the people of, of, hey, the Babylonians are coming. And they've made preparations to defend the city. But when it's time to defend the place, they, they just, they're hopeless. They are in a state of hopelessness. They can't do a thing. You know, if, if they attempt to flee out into the field, they're going to get killed with a sword. If they stay in the city, siege warfare of the day we've talked about before where, you know, not only would, would you know, like the Assyrians, you know, they would use things to scale the city and knock down the walls and puncture, you know, holes in there, go in and get people. But a lot of siege warfare would take weeks and months. They would surround a city and literally starve the people out. They would they would burn the fields outside the city. They would destroy the food. They would cut off water supply if there's water going into the city. Of course, you can't just go out and get water because you're going to get killed by the enemy soldiers. You're, you're going to die. You're going to die of thirst and hunger. And, of course, there's no way to dispose of waste outside the city. You're going to have disease. Siege warfare was a terrible thing. Uh, you know, if, if you were caught in the midst of it and you couldn't get out. And that's what Ezekiel's describing here. A couple of interesting, you know, turns of phrase here, you know, the hands are feeble. That's kind of, you know, self-explanatory. You don't, you know, your, your physical power is spent. You're unable to respond. The, the, the more interesting one, though, is knees turn to water. Now, Block and others, again, uh, you know, maybe one of these episodes on the podcast, we should do uh, uh, an episode on, um, for lack of a better term, scatological language. <laughs> In the Bible, you know, the euphemisms that are used for bodily functions, uh, you know, to, to sort of make them less coarse. Uh, th- this is one of them, you know, and, and, and again, Block isn't the only one, but other scholars have commented on this, this phrase, this language. Block says basically the phrase means all their knees will run with urine. In other words, they're, they're going to pee themselves. They're, they're going to be this frightened and this hopeless. That that's what's going to happen. Block says, the prophet is hereby referring to the loss of bladder control that occurs in the moment of extreme crisis. Ezekiel's expression recalls a neo-Assyrian description of fleeing enemies. Here's what the Assyrians wrote, quote, their hearts beat like that of a fledgling dove chased away and they passed hot urine, unquote. You know, and you can be sure the Assyrians love to write stuff like that because, again, they're, they're the Klingons of the Old Testament. You know, they're going to record stuff like this, the effect that their presence had on a population 
or a city or a, a people literally going down in flames. Uh, and, and this is, again, this is the, a similar phrase to, to what is found in that inscription and, and other sources as well. They're, they're going to pee themselves. I mean, Ezekiel's very fun, as we said last time and, and, and before. Ezekiel's sort of known uh, for being the book where a lot of this kind of language is used, a lot of earthy, coarse, scatological, off-color, sexually explicit, especially when you get to like chapter 16. Uh, Ezekiel has a lot of this stuff in it that's sort of disguised, not only by English translation, but but even even in the Hebrew text, they will use euphemisms uh, for some of these things. But it, again, it, it's a pretty dire picture. Moving on to 19 through 24, again, we've had an economic impact. We've had psychological impact description. 19 through 24, it should be kind of obvious that here we get into sort of a the, the spiritual reaction. You know, they cast their silver into the streets. Their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They can't satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. You know, that's verse 19, or verses 18 and 19, or excuse me, verse 19. And, and again, the, the whole idea is, well, the silver and gold, yeah, it could refer to to wealth, but when it talks about they're unable to they're unable to satisfy their hunger with these things, or the silver and gold is not able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord, you know, while it could refer to oh they can't bribe their way out of this, a lot of scholars think this refers to idols. In other words, the idols that were made with silver and gold, they can't; those idols can't save the people. And the people can't eat them. Okay, they're they're, they're going to starve. They're they're basically no good at all. And and the rest of the passage, you know, sort of tip tips interpretation in that direction because verse twenty it says, "His beautiful ornament they used for pride, and they made their abominable images and their detestable things out of it. Therefore, I make it an unclean thing to them. I'll give it into the hands of foreigners for prey." I mean, God, all these precious idols that, that the, the, the Israelite state, the, the apostate priests and, and the kings or whoever, you know, treated as sacred objects, and, and they, they assigned it sacred space, and they did rituals for it. You know, they, they had to purify themselves to, to be in its presence. God says, I'm going to bring foreigners in here who will just, they're going to treat the, the, this stuff that you thought was sacred like garbage. Okay, because that's what it is. That's really what it is at the end of the day. I will bring in foreigners here to profane the things that you assign sacred status to. They can't save you. They can't do a, a blasted thing for you. Now, the, you know, the, the, the curious phrase here is his beautiful ornament they, just, they use for pride. Now, right here around 590 or so, you know, B.C. with Ezekiel. And so the question is, is this a generic reference to taking the the treasures of the temple, the treasuries, you know, the silver and gold that was, you know, kept in the temple precincts, is it, you know, that was given over to Yahweh. Is it a reference to taking that and fashioning idols with it? Well, it, you know, it certainly could be, obviously. I mean, that that would make sense. You melt down the silver and gold, you know, that was stored up in you know, in, in Yahweh's house, and, and you make idols with it. Uh, for instance, later on in Ezekiel 16, we're going to read this, verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. Now, that that's a reference to, that's using sexual imagery 
again, Ezekiel 16 is known for its sexually explicit stuff. Basically, you made phallic objects, you know, male phallic objects, and screwed yourselves with them. I mean, that, that, that's what he's saying in Ezekiel 16. And so it, it, it could be because the people of, of God are described as the bride, the bride of the one that is the one that commits whoredom with these objects. That's why you have the, the female to male uh, language in Ezekiel 16. And we'll eventually get there. That won't that be a memorable episode, but you know, at the very least, because of a parallel like Ezekiel 16, it may refer to taking the silver and gold making idols out of. Okay. There are some that wonder though, you know, his beautiful ornament you know, there are some that wonder, well, could this refer to the Ark? You know, the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, if if you're one that thinks that the Ark of the Covenant survived the Babylonian invasion, I won't say that that's not possible. Again, but but you, you've you've got a you gotta have a textually based argument, not something that comes from Indiana Jones. Okay. I th- I think it is possible. Be a whole episode to talk about theories of what happened to the Ark. But the reason why, scripturally, it may be unlikely actually comes from Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3.16 says this. Again, Jeremiah speaking before the Babylonian invasion. He's he's, he's living right when Nebuchadnezzar comes for the last time. He says, when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord. He's talking about returning to the land. It shall not come to the or right, let me back up. When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, you know, people shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Okay. Now that verse suggests that in conjunction with the last invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, that the ark was destroyed. It didn't survive. If it survived, you wouldn't be talking about making it again, making a new one. So again, I realize this doesn't jive with the book of Indiana Jones. And hey, I like the movie like everybody else. And 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 I love getting into the theories of what happened to the ark. I mean, I've been there, done that a number of times and I, it, it, it's fascinating. And I, you know, you, you could, you know, make a good case for arc survival, at, at least on one, one or two trajectories, but, but this verse gets in the way. Jeremiah 3.16 gets in the way uh, because of the language that's used here. So you have to deal with that. So if you take this back to Ezekiel 7, you know, my, my beautiful or his beautiful ornament, you know, does that, could it refer to the ark? You know, is, is it an oblique reference to that? Well, we don't know ultimately. If it is, wouldn't that be awful? They took the ark, melted it down, and made idols out of it. I mean, that just just think about that. You know, it, it would be a, a terrible thing. You know? and, and so, you know, when, when God says, hey, I'm going to bring, in, in verse 24, I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses and put an end to the pride of the strong. And, you know, they're going to profane, you know, your all your, your sacred objects. Well, again, you, you get a little bit of an idea for why that's justified. Lastly, in verses 25 through 27, we read this. When anguish comes, they, again, the people who are under, under attack, being taken into bondage, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Verse 26, disaster comes upon disaster. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet. 
block translates this, they will demand a vision from the prophet, which I think does capture it a little bit better. Hey, prophet, do something for us. Give us a vision about how we're going to survive. And, you know, remember the inviolability of Zion. And this is God's house. And come on, speak up. It's not going to happen. They will demand a vision from the prophet. Instruction or the law, the word there, you know, for, for translated law in ESV is Torah. Instruction, law perishes or will vanish from the priest. The priest isn't going to know what to tell you. It's not go out and do a few, you know, Hail Marys or a few, you know, this or that ritual and it'll all be okay. God will relent. Priest is going to have nothing to say. And neither will there be counsel from the elders, you know, your 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 quasi religious political leaders, your advisors to the king. That there is no solution. Don't look for any, is Ezekiel saying. Okay, there is no solution. There is nothing that is going to dissuade God from doing what he needs to do here and what he is he's going to do. So there's no use in appealing to spiritual authorities for intercession. You know, what can we do to make God relent? Short answer, nothing. And there's no sense of in appealing to political leadership or your, even your fellow citizens. Who's going to help you? Short answer, nobody. Again, this is the message of chapter 7. And again, as, as we you know wrap up here, I think the real takeaway for us, it really is twofold. I mean, I, I, I harped a little bit upon, upon the inviolability idea. B- before we, we sort of snicker or look down on the Israelites, well, how could they have been so foolish to think that, that Zion was inviolable, that God would never let it die, that God would never let it be destroyed is probably a better way to say that that God wouldn't touch it because he was associated with it. And before we were, we're too quick to sort of snicker at them for, for that misconception. <laughs> do we think the same? I mean, honestly, do we, you know, do we think the same thing about the church here in America? And again, you know, America is the, is the last best hope. I mean, I, I, I believe that I think it's the best country in the world. I think, you know, you know, there are a number of fundamental things that, that separates us from every place else. You know, but, but America is, you know, is not the kingdom of God. It's not the new Israel. I mean, Jesus couldn't have been clearer when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, America is of this world, so by definition, it can't be that. Again, it's very simple, but but you know we we tend to think of ourselves because we have been so blessed, you know, by God, and and this has been a place where the gospel can flourish, you know, there, where there's freedom, and all those things are, are are wonderful and shouldn't be taken for granted. But the fact that they exist is not an argument that they will always exist. The fact that they exist isn't an argument that we have special, divinely sanctioned status. From on high, the hand of God is always going to keep this country as it was or as it is. There is no such guarantee. There wasn't for Israel and there isn't for us. There isn't for our church. Uh, again, even if, even if you have a good church, even if you weren't part of the, of the state-sanctioned apostasy of Israel, people who were godly still suffered. 
because of what the ungodly had done. And again, I don't think it takes much commentary to think that, boy, this really isn't that far from where we're living now. I mean, because you look around and and for all the, the wonderful things that we can cite America for, we are living in a, in a frankly godless nation. I mean, we, are, we have turned the corner. You know, our, our leadership is just hell-bent. You know, the, the gathering rush to any perversity or, or point of ungodliness, if they see it, they're chasing it down and glorifying it, sanctioning it, making it a virtue. That, that's the nature of the, of the country in which we live. And, you know, it shouldn't be that way. I don't want it to be that way. You know, it would be wonderful if it wasn't. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's, worth, it's worth defending, you know, to, to get it back to, to a place where, you know, we don't have to think those thoughts and we don't have those realizations. But the bottom line is this is a human creation. Our country is a human creation. You know, we, we, we're, we're blessed to be here because we could be a whole lot of, of other worse places. But we need to start thinking about, we need to start thinking about the distinction between the kingdom of God, the thing that is eternal, okay, that thing which is eternal, that thing that where Jesus said, look, don't fear those who are able to, to, to kill body, to, to kill the body, you know, to destroy the body. Fear the one who is able to destroy the soul, you know, to, to what, what's eternal and what isn't. And, and again, this is why, you know, in, in a number of other contexts, even in my fiction or whatnot, I, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to get people to start thinking about, look, if we lose, you know, the, the, the freedoms that we have, if, if, if things get tough for us, if we fall under, if the righteous suffer because of the apostasy and the evil of our leadership, whether that be in political circles or within our own church, and boy, trust me, we could have a, whole, a long conversation about that one too, about the apostasy within the quote, quote, quote unquote, believing community. If the righteous suffer because of those things, how do we still carry out the Great Commission? How do we still do the things we're supposed to do that God wants us to be done or wants us to do? You know, how does the church flourish? you know, under persecution and awful circumstances. It does. You know, in our own day and age, we could point to the third world or Africa or China, Soviet Union, underground church. It, it's booming. Okay. It's bursting at the seams. How does that happen? And again, I think we need to start thinking about what is eternal, what is the kingdom of God, and what is lesser, what is on a, what, what is on a lower pedestal. And again, bless God that we have the freedoms that we do and hope, hopefully they will be sustained. But if not, again, we do have a higher thing to aspire to and we have membership in a greater entity than, you know, our own, our own country, our own political system. You know, we are members of the kingdom of God. And even if we suffer, you know, loss of life, whatever, God still remembered the godly of his people in these circumstances back here, you know, he was just warning them to tell them, look, apostasy will be punished. There will be a cost. But at the end of the day, the Lord knows who, who's righteous and who's not. The, the Lord knows who are, who are his, who, those who are him, his belong to him and those who don't. So I think, again, this is a chapter in Ezekiel that, that can help kind of straighten out our thinking, get us focused on the things that are eternal versus the things that aren't. 
All right, Mike. Well, I'm going to hold you to that about doing a whole show about the theories about what happened to the Ark. <laughs> it's cool stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fun. Stuff. Who doesn't it's like that? Stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 not one that that adheres to the Tannis view that's in the movie, but uh, I think they're actually more interesting views. Well, I look forward to. I'm going to mark that down. I'm serious. We're going to do a whole <laughs> show on that. So, keep yeah, that we on. should. Yeah, keep that on the radar. So you, you like that one even more than the scatological language? I'm well, surprised, Trey. You're the, you're no, the one that's doing the well, get naked Bible podcast. Well, one's <laughs> one's language and one's an adventure, right? I mean, it's treasure hunting. <laughs> so uh, they're both good, and we both we should do both. So let's mark that okay. down and, and let's hold ourselves to it. So, all right, Mike. Well, next week. We're going to do two chapters, eight and nine, correct? Yeah. Yep. Ezekiel eight and nine. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add to the show? No. Okay. Well, we appreciate it. With that, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.